the Pasik says that when Paro calls in, calls in the midwives and asks them, how come you defied my decree? You let the children live. So they made an excuse. By the time we get there, they're already born. And Hashem sees how, how the um, midwives were God-fearing. Hashem sees how the midwives were God-fearing. And God made for them houses. Houses, homes, however one translates the word. He made for them houses. What does it mean that Hashem rewarded them by making for them houses? So if you look in, um, in Rashi, Rashi is in the second column, top line. Vayaslam botim. They were rewarded by being given umalchus. Houses or homes or the house of Kuhuna, the house of Levia, the house of Malchus, of royalty. In other words, from their descendants came came houses of nobility for the Jewish people as well as the Kohanim and Levium. By tradition, the two midwives were Yocheved and Miriam, and from them issued forth houses of Kuhuna, Levia, and Malchus from Miriam, Gamor and Saitan. So, there's an interesting, if you look over here, from Revolio Mishkovsky, the bottom right, side two. Today being the millennium, he was the person that worked a lot on the dateline issues. Right now, if you listen to the news, the whole question about the year 2000, right now sweeping across the globe. And uh, the question is where the dateline begins, where the year 2000 begins. It's happening today. So the question as to where the Jewish dateline is, he dealt with it extensively. He, had, he points out a very interesting an interesting concept, interesting lesson. How come Chazal saw in this Pasuk that Hashem rewards the midwives by that their, that their children from them issued forth houses, botim, that the botim that are referred to are Kuhuna, Levia, and Malchus. What about Tyre? Where did Chazal see that the term batim is used here to refer to obviously things of significance which would be houses of Kahuna, Levi, and Malchus? What about Torah? Torah is the most important. Why not batim of Torah? After all, the same way that you see the descendants that issued from Yocheved and Miriam as being Kohanan, Levium, and royalty, certainly they were the great Torah leaders of the generation as well. Why don't we refer to them as Batim of Torah and Chochmah? B'tzalel, Miriam's grandson, she was the one, he's the one that made the Mishkan, 
B'tzalel, B'tzel Kel. He had the wisdom that the Gemara describes to be able to combine the letters of the of the alphabet in a mystical way to create to create the the initial creation, so to speak, in order to be able to build the Mishkan, the Aron, Moshe Rabbeinu, Aron, certainly. So, why only refer to Kahuna Levi and Malchus when we know that Torah is even more significant and is even more important? Why not say that, look at the way they were rewarded, that from their children issued forth houses of, of the greatness of Torah, of Torah leadership. So he says here a very important lesson. From a Pesach and Tilim, we say, Beis Yisrael Borchu is Hashem, the house of Israel, bless Hashem. Beis Aaron Borchu is Hashem, house of Aaron, bless Hashem. Beis Halevi Borchu is Hashem. Notice that then the Tilim switches and says, Yirei Hashem, Borchu is Hashem. Those that are God-fearing, should bless Hashem. How come over there it doesn't say bias? It says base Aaron, base Halevi, base Israel. Why not base Yirei Hashem? How come by Yirei Hashem it only refers to them as individuals rather than as a as a home, as a bias? So what we see from here is that the word bias is only appropriate in certain circumstances. Why is that? Bias represents something of permanence, something that goes over in inheritance from generation to generation. A home, a person's home, a person's house, a person's established, a person's established uh, clan, if you will. And therefore the word bias, which represents something of nitzchias, something of permanence, is something that goes on from generation to generation. Base Aaron, therefore, is appropriate to refer to the house of Kuhuna. Because the house of Kuhuna is given over inheritance from generation to generation. Aaron was Zoycha. Aaron deserved and merited the, the establishment of Kuhuna. And forever and ever, it's an irrevocable gift that was given to the Kohanim, that was given to Aaron and his children. And therefore, whoever is a descendant of Aaron is part of this bias, is part of the base Aaron. And you have kuhuna. You're born into it. It's something that you're born into. You don't have to earn it. You're born into it. Base Halevi. Base Halevi. The house of Levi. You're born into Levia. You're born a Levi. It's there as a birthright. You're born a Jew, Beis Yisrael. They're called now birthright Israel. <coughs> so therefore, all of these things, you could utilize the term bias to signify something which was given to you as a gift, which then could be transmitted generation after generation as a permanent gift, as a permanent abode that you were given as a gift. The one thing that you don't find that goes over be Yerusha is Torah and Yerashmayim. Hakol bidei Shemayim chutz mi Yerashmayim. Everything is in the hands of heaven as a gift, except for Yerashmayim. The Mishnah says in Pirkei Ovas, Haskei atzmucha lilmo Torah, she'eino Yerushaloch, 
prepare yourself to learn Torah because Torah is not going to go over as an inheritance. The same way that you have to struggle for it. Yes, there is merit that may make it easier for your children, but your children in their own right have to earn their way and have to develop their own Torah greatness. Torah doesn't come as a Yerusha. Your Shemaim doesn't come as a Yerusha. It doesn't go over by inheritance. It's not a birthright. Torah and your Shemaim, although they may be the most important, nevertheless, they have to be earned on an individual basis. You can never be considered great in Torah or Tzidkis or your Shemaim by inheriting it from your parents. That's one thing that you have to do on your own. You know, they always say that Yichus is like a bunch of zeros. And if you have a one in front of it, it gives it great value. If you have nothing in front of it, it remains zero. So all the things that you inherit, whatever you get from Yichus, there's a certain amount of things that you have to earn yourself. You have to be one yourself. Otherwise, you just have a zero, zero value. That's, that's why there's so much havoc going to be wreaked with all the computers, because of the zero value. If it's, right, it's changing tomorrow to the year zero. But zero has no significance. It's a zero. If you have a one in front of it, it gives it great value. One thousand, two thousand, whatever the case may be. That's what Yichus is. You inherit Yichus, you're only inheriting, you're only inheriting a bunch of zeros, but you still have to be the one yourself. When it comes to Kahuna, when it comes to Levi, all of these things, those could be classified as Batin, as something that Hashem gives over as a permanent structure in the boat. But Tyre and Yerushimayim has to be earned on an individual basis. They don't go over as an inheritance by Yerusha. It can't therefore refer to base Yeri Hashem. Therefore, Chazal saw very clearly in this Pasuk, the Pasuk says that Hashem rewarded them. Hashem rewarded them not merely by giving them great children, which indeed he, he, they had. The children of Yocheved and of Miriam were great children. They became the Torah leaders for the next generations. But it says the Pasuk refers to them as being granted batim. Vayaslo and batim. Batim implies a gift that was given to them that's going to be given by Yerusha generation after generation. It's going to go over by inheritance. That cannot refer to Torah or Yerushimayim. It could refer to Kuhuna, Leviya, Malchus. All of these things go be Yerusha. Kuhuna goes be Yerusha. Malchus, Leviya, all go be Yerusha. But Torah and Yerushimayim never go be Yerusha. And if Hashem rewards them by saying they're being given Batim, Batim cannot refer to... It, 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 it represents a permanent gift which will naturally flow to the next generation. That's not telling your Shemaim. What it does tell you though is that if a person himself comes and grows, as I said earlier about Yichus, grows up in that kind of an atmosphere of a house, inevitably, if a person makes of himself something, it enhances it by having the Yichus. And therefore, if you grow up in a home of Miriam, in a home of Yocheved, and then you make something out of yourself, you'll become a B'tzalel, and you'll become a Moshe Rabbeinu as well. But you have to make something out of yourself, and then the Yichus has its value. We know that 
after Paro made that decree, made a decree to throw the children, the boys, into the Nile and drown them. Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, was placed in a little ark-like basket, or whatever you want to refer to it, and was found by Paro's daughter. I was brought up in the palace. And Chazal tell us, <coughs> if you look in Pasuk Zion, on page 129, towards the top, Miriam, who was standing on the sidelines to see what was going to happen to the baby, goes over to Paro's daughter and asks her, Should I call for you, hire for you, a woman, a wet nurse, from the Hebrew women? In order to nurse the child. So Rashi brings down over here, why does she offer, why does she offer only to look for a Hebrew nurse as opposed to an Egyptian nurse? So if you look, quote Rashi over here, that she, that she originally tried to hire Egyptian nurses to nurse Moshe Rabbeinu, the infant. He wouldn't take the milk. He wouldn't take the milk. Why not? Because the mouth that was destined to speak to the Shechina and talk to God, speak to him face to face, shouldn't nurse from an Egyptian woman's breast. The milk that, that the infant should imbibe should come from a Jewish breast and not from, a, from an Egyptian one. So this is, there's too much to go into about this whole idea about what it represents. Milk nursing, what goes forth from a mother to a child. Certainly we talked before about the idea of batim that we once mentioned this, this concept before. I mentioned this on many occasions. How Jewish education by men is given orally. By women, the old-fashioned way that it was done was that they breathed it in in the Jewish home. For that reason, when they made when they made the base Yaakov, they called it a base Yaakov, the house of Yaakov. Because the word batim, before we talked about a home as an established abode, but a home is also an atmosphere. It surrounds you with a certain atmosphere. And whereas Jewish boys, Jewish men, always learned orally, the example that Mayor Shapiro gives to this is the two ways that medicine used to be administered in the old days. One is orally, where you would swallow the medicine, a pill, a bitter pill possibly, sometimes it would be tough. Or sometimes you'd like breathe it in when you were in a room, and you'd breathe it in through vapors. It would come in more naturally. It would be absorbed through, through breathing it in almost by osmosis. It says those are the two ways that Yiddishkeit is transmitted. To, 
to men, to boys, it was always given traditionally from mouth to ear. It was administered orally. And sometimes it was tough. I mean, you learn Yuvamas, you see sometimes what a tough pill it is to swallow and how difficult it is. <coughs> and as we pointed out on many occasions, Yuvamas is not politically correct. It minces no words, it tells you, it uses terms that are a little tough to swallow. It doesn't necessarily come in so naturally, so easily. Women's education usually was in the home. It was breathed in through the atmosphere of the home. Vayasla and Batin, women ishto zubesa. Right? We learn, and even in Yuvamas, if you look in the, the, the whole idea of, um, of, of doing Yibum, the whole idea of doing Yibum is And that becomes in the Sechnes Yivamis a very significant term. Bias throughout the Sechnes Yivamis refers to the wife. The wife is the bias. And likewise, when we talk about building the brother's house, we're talking about marrying his widow. And if you refuse to do Yibum, you're considered to be Refusing to build your brother's home, his bias. Bias One Yivama, two Yivamas, four. You only marry one because you only build one house. Throughout Masechus Yivamas, we find how the widow is referred to as the bias of the brother. And therefore, you only build one bias, not two bottom. You can only marry one of the widows, not both of the widows. So throughout, we always find how a woman is called a bias. And likewise over here, Hashem gives them bottom. The woman is the one that builds the, the home. Shalom buys. Tonight, a lot of people are going to be lighting candles. We're going to be lighting extra candles because of the Y2K possible problems. So there should be enough light in the house in case the electricity goes out. So you shouldn't stumble around. The truth of the matter is it's very appropriate on Friday night because that's precisely what the essence of Shalom buys. You remember from the Shabbos, we learned about it. Shalom bias means to have light in the house so it shouldn't be pitch black and you shouldn't be stumbling around. And that's called Shalom bias. And Ishto Zubeso, that's the essence of Shalom bias. The woman is the home. Women's education, therefore, was always in the home, but like the home, an atmosphere of Torah would permeate the home, and that's how she would be educated. Tr transmission of Torah was likewise the same way. She would transmit Torah to the next generation, likewise by building a home and giving to the next child, giving to the next generation. She would build a bias. For that reason, the Pasuk says, Listen, my son, to the Musar of your father. Do not reject the Torah of your mother. Why by the father does it refer to listening to his Torah and by the mother it refers to don't reject because in the case of the father Torah is studied and learned from him and you have to do an active active involvement to learn Torah in the case of Torah learning that you learn from your mother whether a son or a daughter that comes transmitted automatically because it permeates the home and you breathe it in 
and you automatically absorb it by osmosis. It's only if you actively reject it that you don't learn from your mother. From a father, you have to make an active act of learning Torah. From your mother, as long as you don't reject it, it's going to automatically be learned because they create a Torah environment, a Torah atmosphere, a Torah home. So in a sense, the Torah of a mother comes transmitted automatically in the process of nursing. When a child suckles from its mother, there's an automatic transmission of Torah. We learned, when we learned Chagiga, we talked about Elisha ben Navuya. Why he wound up going off the derech, why he wound up becoming a heretic. And one of the things brought down about him is how his mother breathed in the vapors of Avodah when she went by a house of Avodah Another example we had in, in Yuma about pregnant women when Rabbi Yochanan was born versus someone else that when they went by either a house of Avodah or a house of, or it was Treif or it was uh, whatever on Yom Kippur breathing in those vapors affected mother and child. Gemara in Yuma tells us and that's what the Gemara says regarding Elisha ben Nebuya and Yerushalmi and other places as well. How the effects of the mother breathing in vapors of either treif or vapors of of um, Yom Kippur or vapors of Avot Zarah affected mother and thereby affected child. And likewise, when Elisha ben Avuya was was being nursed by his mother, she would sing him lullabies that weren't the best lullabies. They weren't kosher lullabies. And a mother therefore transmits to the very child when, when a mother nurses, when a mother sings and rocks the baby to sleep and nurses and sings lullabies, those lullabies that she sings have an impact on the child. Vayas lohem botem. And therefore, Vayas lohem botem means not only that Hashem rewarded them by giving them botem, but the very essence of a woman is botem. She's transmitted to her botem. She's the transmitter of botem. She's the creator of botem. Ishto zubeso. Shalom bias. She creates the bias. And the essence of a bias is the creation of an atmosphere and an environment which is imbued with Torah where the children in the home automatically breathe it in, suckle it, nurse it, whatever the case may be, it comes in naturally. Don't reject the Torah of your mother. And therefore every Jewish mother, when she nurses her child, she's nursing her child and injecting in them Torah. And in the lullaby that she sings, that are Torah lullabies, or lullabies of Torah in your Shemaim, it becomes injected in the very fiber of that baby. And a Goyish one is just the opposite. The mother's teaching, like the mother's milk, comes automatically, comes naturally, it flows naturally. It has to be actively rejected. Moshe Rabbeinu actively rejected the Egyptian breast, the Egyptian tire, the Egyptian milk. That he rejected. The milk, though, from his mother, Yochevet, that flows naturally into every fiber of his being and is suffused with Torah in Yerushalayim, that he accepted 
that's al titoish terasimecho. It'll come naturally and automatically as long as you don't reject it. The mother creates the bias. The mother learns herself from the bias. Beis Yaakov, Kosomar Leves Yaakov. Women learn, they themselves imbibe of the atmosphere of the home, but then they create their homes. And in the homes that they create, they inject their Torah and Yerushmaim into the very atmosphere of the home. And that's what nursing is. When they nurse, they give over from their very essence. And if their essence is suffused with Torah and Yerushmaim, then that Torah and Yerushmaim becomes imbibed in the child naturally. Through the natural nursing process, the mother gives over of her very being into the child. Moshe Rabbeinu, clearly an exceptional infant, rejected the negative influences that come from nursing from a guy. You have to reject it. It's a very difficult thing. It will come automatically. It comes naturally. You have to do an act of rejection. Moshe Rabbeinu did that act of rejection as an infant from the Egyptian breast. But Yocheved was able to create the batim. Hashem rewarded them by making batim. But the essence of women is the creation of batim. And that's what nursing is. Nursing is part of this biased process of transmission where the mother gives off of her very being and the child suckles and nurses and imbibes from that being. The Pasuk in Mishlei, Da'adeha Yervucha Bucholes, the Gemara in Ervin Daftadalam and Bey says that the Torah is compared to a breast. Madadze calls mancha tinik with mashishba moitzebocholov avdivre Torah calls mancha odom hoigibo and moitzeban tam. That the Torah is compared to the suckling that a child has from a breast that takes milk. The Gemara Psachim Dav Pezayin says, Ani choyma veshodai kemigdolois, shodaim elu talmidichachomim, says Rashi, talmidichachomim are manik, nurse others like the breast nurses. The same way that the breast nurses the child, Talmidei Chachom and nurse Klal Yisrael and teach Torah. The Gemara and Brochus Daf Yud on the Pasuk Pio Paschut B'Chochma, Dovr HaMelech praises Hashem. The Gemara says how Dovr HaMelech praises Hashem, Nistakel B'Dadev Omar Shira. He sang praises to Hashem for the fact that an infant is able to nurse from its mother from the place where the heart is, from the place of Bina. Hashem made the place of where a child nurses next to the heart of the woman, the place of Bina, and the child nurses from that Bina. As the Marsha explains over there in the Gemara, in, in Brachas Daf Yud, that, that the unique of the child, his actual suckling and nursing from the, from the breast is the place of Bina, the place of wisdom and understanding in a person's heart, Kineged Halev, that's the place of Bina. So the Mephoshim over there explain at great length what this all means and how it all comes about. But in any case, we see somewhat this concept, that the natural process of nursing that a mother suckles the child is one in which the child develops from and learns from, and it's part of the overall process of the transmission of Torah and Yerushmaim from mother to child it comes through a natural means and it comes through the natural nursing process and it's imbued in the child by the atmosphere and the bias that the woman creates. A woman creates the environment. 
The woman creates the, the bias. She creates the atmosphere. And her Torah and Yerushmaim permeates that atmosphere and suffuses it throughout. And the home that she creates, that's the home that the child develops in and nurtures from. And that's the home and the atmosphere that the child imbibes and breathes in and develops from. The Menorahs Hamor, in Ne'er Gimel, Klalal of Chelik Beis, Perik Beis, brings down a very fascinating story. We know from the Gemara, from many Gemaras, how Rabbi Yudah Nossi, who compiled the Mishnah, was very close friends with the Roman Emperor of the time, who many historians say was Marcus Aurelius. In the Gemara, he's referred to as Antoninus, and Marcus Aurelius was called Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, and many historians say that this is the Roman Emperor that was very good friends with Rebbe, with Rebbe Nasi. The Gemara discusses the many discourses that they had and how Antoninus would actually learn from Rebbe Nasi Taira. There was a period of a number of years where he lived near where Rebbe Nasi lived in Kayseri. There's even one tradition that, that he secretly converted to become a Yid. The Gemara recounts many encounters between them and the discourses and the discussions that they had questions that he had. It seems that, that uh, Antoninus was very interested in learning Torah, was very interested in Yiddishkeit and in the Torah view of things. And they were very close friends and apparently they had a close relationship. And in general Antoninus was very sympathetic to Jews, to Judaism and to the Torah. And he had many questions because he had a great desire to learn to learn Torah. So the Menorah Hamor records where all of this came from? How did this all come about that they became such close friends and how Antoninus became so sympathetic to Torah and to Judaism? So he records the following story. When Rabbi Nasi was born, he was born during the period of persecution, during the Shas Hashmad, where there were great decrees against the Jews learning Torah and against Brismila. Rabbi Nasi's father was Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, Nasi Yisrael, and he had a son, Yehuda, circumcised. He had a bris. And although there was a decree against Mila at the time, he nevertheless had a son circumcised. Apparently the emperor found out through some, someone who mastered that Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel circumcised his child, and he was commanded by the emperor to bring the baby to be able to see because obviously this is something which which there's no way of of covering up. The night before they were supposed to appear to the emperor, they were lodging in an inn and that night they met the family of Antoninus who was born at that time as well. He was also an infant. Obviously being a Roman he was uncircumcised. The family of Antoninus offered to switch babies that they should bring Antoninus before the emperor pretending to be the baby Ramuda Anasi. And for that one day that they that they switched babies, that they switched infants, Antoninus nursed from the mother of Ramuda Anasi, from the wife of Rabshim ben Gamliel Nasi Israel. Says the Minara Samar, Ubizhar Oisai Cholov, Sheyonak Antoninus may Imo Shal Rabbeinu Akodish, Zochov Loma Taira, the Shimesh as Rabbeinu Akodish, in other words, Antoninus was Zaycha to a chalik of Torah by nursing from the mother of Rabbi Yudah Nasi. 
we see that the actual nursing, even for that one day, had an impact on his life later, and who knows how that affected the course of history from that one day of nursing that Antoninus had from the mother of Rebuyra Nasi. But again, what we see from this is this is the way, this is the process by which a mother transmits Torah to a child, that it goes through the very, very being and essence of the person themselves, that it gets transferred kind of by absorption from one person to the other. So there's an interesting question. The question arises, how logically can a Jewish baby nurse from a non-Jewish woman? This is discussed in the Gemara in Saita, Dafyud Beis of the Beis by the Rishonim there, the Gemara in Avoid the Zor, Daf Chavav, and there's a discussion of this in Taisus, in the Rishonim, in the Ran, in the Rajba, as well as the Gemara in Yivamis, Daf Kofiudal, Raman Alef, where the Rajba talks about this and says, definitely, halachically, milk from a non-Jewish woman is not any more forbidden than milk from a Jewish woman. They're both equally kosher. However, concludes the Rashba, It's not any more kosher to have Jewish milk over Goyesha milk. But nevertheless, he suggests, this then becomes the psak in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Ramah, and the Ramah in Yerodeah, Simon Pei Aleph, passes like this Rashba, as the Vildegoyen explains over there, that the source of the Ramah's psak is this Rashba. And the Ramah passes as follows, Chol of Mitzvah, Kachol of Yisraelis, non-Jewish milk, from the non-Jewish woman is the same as Jewish, and therefore it's perfectly permissible. Nevertheless, he says, This is the Psak of the Ramah, the Shach, the Taz over there discuss some of these things. The Goyen says the Makor of the Rashba of the Ramah is this Rashba, and the Makor of it comes from Moshe Rabbeinu. In other words, just as we see that Moshe Rabbeinu avoided and resisted nursing from a non-Jewish woman, we learn from this that L'chabchila, it should be avoided. Says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, this is a Pella. We know that the reason why Moshe Rabbeinu avoided it, and the Medish over here says it clearly, it's clearly permissible for for a, for a Jewish baby to suckle from a non-Jewish woman. So the Medrash says, why didn't Maishu Rabbeinu, if it's perfectly mutter? So as Rashi brings down over here from the Gemara and Saita, that's the Gemara and Saita that we said earlier, The mouth that's destined to speak to the Shechina should not nurse from a non-Jewish breast. That's what the Medrash Rabbah says over here as well. And that's the Gemara in Saita, Dafyud Beis of the Beis, which is the source of this Rashi. Because Omar HaKadosh Baruch Hu Hesha'osin L'dabirim HaShchina Lo'yonak Dover Tomei. This is also derived 
from the Pasuk itself where the Pasuk says that Miriam offered Apparently, it's, it's implicit in the Pasuk itself that she offered to bring a nurse because apparently pa, the daughter of Paro was having difficulty finding someone for the infant to nurse from. So we learn out from the words that the Torah emphasizes on, because it's superfluous. If all it was was a question of bringing a nurse so she should have offered What does it mean Isha Minekas Mino Ivriyas? Because Melamed Sheikh Zirasal Mitsuis Harvey and he refused to nurse the Pishahoya Osan Dabir Mashina, Pesha Osan Dabir Mashina should not nurse from a mitzvah. Clearly that Vaish Rabbeinu is an exception. He was the only human being to speak to Hashem face to face, pe el pe, mouth to mouth, and for that reason he as the exception should avoid nursing from from, uh, from a mitzvah. Why then does this become enshrined in halacha? That every Jewish child should avoid nursing from a mitzvah. Clearly, Moshe Rabbeinu then was unique and exceptional. How does this then become part of the halacha to be applied to every single Jewish infant? Says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, we learned from here a tremendous lesson. This is a tremendous lesson in Chinuch. Every child potentially could be a Moshe Rabbeinu and could be a Medaber in Mashchina. And therefore our standards of Chinuch have to be not half-hearted, not bedieved, but that we should view each child as potentially reaching the level of a Moshe Rabbeinu who will speak to the Shechina and we should give him Chinuch accordingly. Tzorach shechinuch kol yeled kezeh should be on such a level. Ochenia should be on the madrega of osid ledaber mashchina. Every Jewish child should be viewed as a potential osid ledaber mashchina. And the truth is, if that's the way we we educate the children, then they will be much greater than we otherwise would have. A person who views his child as potentially reaching limitless levels of spirituality and greatness has a shot and a chance to make it. If you start off thinking that my child will never be on that madrega, your child will never be there. If the potential of a person is almost limitless, everybody, and if you view it that way, if you view a person's potential as being limitless, then they they will reach heights undreamed of. And this therefore has to be a lesson in Chinuch that all of us should have. We learn from this halacha in Shulchan Aruch, this important lesson, that Pesha Osin Ladaber Mashchina, which was a unique occurrence once in the history of the world, was only Moshe Rabbeinu. No one will ever be as great as Moshe. Nevertheless, every Jewish child is brought up with the possibility of Pesha Osin Ladaber Mashchina. Again, halacha doesn't mandate over here that as a minimal standard that they should all have to be nursed this way. Because halacha leaves the leeway. The halacha leaves the leeway for, for greater latitude and flexibility. But nevertheless, it tells us what we have to strive for in Chinuch. That we should view a child's potential as being infinite and limitless. And we should raise him accordingly. As I've said over many times, the story, the person that goes to 
Chaim Brisker and says, give me a brach, I know I'll never be a Talmud Chacham. I'll never make it, but I want my children to be Talmud Chacham. It says, I give you a bracha that your children should have children that they'll want to become Talmud Chacham. If all you view yourself is that, that you'll never make it, but you want your children to make it, then the most you could hope for in educating your child is that they will have children and that they should want their children to be Talmud Chacham. If you want to be a Talmud Chacham and you strive to be a Talmud Chacham, although you'll never make it, but then you have a good chance that your children will be Talmud Chacham. If you strive and yearn to be a Talmud Chacham yourself, then that's the Chinuch that you're going to give over to your children and they may actually become that great Talmud Chacham. But if you yourself view your potential as limited and the most you want is that your children should be like that, then that's the Chinuch that you're giving over to them and they'll also only have a half-hearted chinuch and reach only half their potential. A person's goals have to be to reach the stars. And therefore this is a very important lesson in chinuch. It's really a double lesson in chinuch. It's really three lessons. Number one, that from very infancy, the mother projects and injects into the child of a very being and she creates an atmosphere that permeates the home and if it's suffused with Tyre and Yerushmaim, then inevitably that'll be automatically and naturally transmitted into the child. A second lesson is how we should view Chinuch, that we should never be satisfied with half-hearted measures, but we have to go for the, for, for the, for the stars. We have to go for the gold, so to speak. And therefore Chinuch has to be on the highest and purest of levels and that we should view each child as being a potential Moshe Rabbeinu. But it's also a third lesson. It tells us a lesson about the child itself. That a child could be potentially Pesha Osid Ladabir Mashrina if only we would raise it properly and the child would make the effort. Then together combined, yes, it could be a Moshe Rabbeinu. Pesha Osid Ladabir Mashrina. But for that you have to have Shifa, you have to have yearning, both in terms of the parents and the chinuch and in the child himself. Elisha ben Navuya, when he talks about his background, he talks about how he was initially started off on the wrong foot by his father. And as we mentioned earlier, the mother herself, she herself breathed in the vapors of Avodah and as a result, produced this kind of offspring. And even when she nursed him and sang lullabies to him, she sang Greek songs and Greek lullabies to her child. Those Greek lullabies impacted on the child. The way she nursed that child impacted on the child. Even the very air that she breathed in affected the child. And as the Gemara tells us in Yuma, the counterpart to Rabbi Eichnam, when his mother was pregnant with him and she refused to eat on Yom Kippur, the child that developed from was Rabbi Eichnam. Whereas Rabbi Yudan Nasi said that the other child of the other mother turns into, into a gangster, into a crook. Because the very air that the mother breathes in affects the child. And the child himself breathes in and imbibes that which the mother creates as an atmosphere in the home. These then are very important lessons about Chinuch how to view a child's potential, how to create an atmosphere 
for the home to initially raise this child and how to never limit the purity and the goals that we have for a child. They should be infinite in scope and we should view the child as potentially reaching the highest levels. Let's now move on to another lesson in keeping with the times. Today, of course, being December 31st, 1999, the so-called last day of the millennium, the beginning of the new millennium. As we speak, millennial mania is sweeping the globe because it starts already in the Pacific, the new day has begun, and as we speak, every hour, a new part of the globe is entering the so-called year of 2000, the second millennium. Let's try to understand what is eternal and what is eternally significant. There's the so-called expression, turn Friday night into Shabbos. And there are many places that are sponsoring Friday night, because today being Arab Shabbos and the dawning of the millennium, some people are trying to combine the two. But what is it? Is it just an ordinary Friday night that's made significant because it's the year 2000? It's the beginning of the millennium? Or perhaps it's quite the contrary. What's significant about tonight is not that it's the year 2000, but that it's an ordinary Friday night. It's a Shabbos. That's what's significant. How does one define things that are significant, that are eternally valuable? Who are the great people of history? How did they affect the world? Now there's always talk of man of the year. Time magazine has man of the century. Who is the person that had the greatest impact and significance for the entire century? They chose it to be Albert Einstein. On the other hand, in the eyes of the world, what are the people that have significance? Who are the people that matter? Who are the people that count? And then again, by the Torah standards, who are the people and what are the places and what are the events and the things that count the most? After Moshe Rabbeinu escapes to Midian, and we don't hear of Moshe for the next 80 years, he comes to the burning bush and Hashem asks him, tells him that he's to do a mission to redeem Kal Yisrael from its rhyme. Moshe Rabbeinu refuses, at first he refuses based on, interestingly enough, the fact that his mouth and his speech is defective. He says, To which Hashem says, And Hashem says, furthermore, I will be with your mouth. I will be with your mouth. I will show you what to speak. I will send Aaron as your spokesperson. And therefore Hashem says, Aaron will be your mouth. But the Torah also records how Hashem was angry at Moshe for refusing that it should be given over to Aaron. And he says, I know your concern with Aaron is that he's the older one, the greater one. But you should know, What are these three words? He will see you and he will rejoice. And unlike what you think, that he'll feel bad for your greatness, he'll be rejoicing and he'll be happy at your success and at your greatness. Says the Medush in Rus on these words, what does it mean, 
says the Medrash Rabbah in Rus, showing that a person should do a mitzvah with enthusiasm and with a gladness and a full heart. Had Ruvain realized when he saved Yosef that the Torah was going to say regarding his saving of Yosef, then he would have done it with such a way he would have carried him dancing on his shoulders to back to his father Yaakov. Ilu Yoda Aaron had Aaron have realized that it was his act of going to meet Moshe Rabbeinu, Hakadosh Baruch Hu was going to write in the Torah. He nei uyoitz lekrasecha v'ruach of the samach belibai v'tupim v'mochaylas v'yoyoitz lekras Moshe. He would have gone up with a band and with a procession and with musical instruments to greet Moshe Rabbeinu. And the message goes on to say the same thing regarding Boaz. Had Boaz have realized that it would be recorded in the Navi regarding what he did, he would have done it with a much greater level of generosity. The Medrash then concludes, nowadays, when a person does a mitzvah, mi kaisva kaisva, it's also being recorded. It's being recorded by Elio Anavi and ultimately the Melech HaMashiach HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They sign it and in the future it will be read and therefore, when a person does a mitzvah, it's also being recorded in the Sefer HaZacharimus. The Medrash says, Revelia Meir Bloch is a little bit perplexing. What does it mean? A person would do these things only because of the reward. Had Aaron have realized that it's going to be written down, he would have done it with much greater zeal and enthusiasm. He'd do it with a greater degree of lev sholem. And a person, if he would realize how everything that he has is being written down in the books, he should therefore do Bulev Sholem. Are we doing things in order to be rewarded by having it inscribed? And what kind of a reward actually is the inscription to have it written down? Why should that be a motivating factor to cause a person to do with much greater levels of Shleimus? Explains William Mayor Bloch a very important concept regarding the Torah in general. We know that great sections of people's lives that are very important are absent from the Torah. We know that the life of Avram basically begins recorded in the Torah at age 75. All of the great deeds that Avram did till 75, including being thrown into the fiery furnace, including the shattering of the idols when he was young, as well as the development of the concepts of monotheism, are nowhere mentioned in the Torah. Even by Shurabainu, whose life seems to be the most thoroughly and extensively recorded in the Torah, because we seem to be intimately aware of Moshe Rabbeinu's life, because from now till the end of the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu is constantly being mentioned. Even so, we know very little of his life. We know about his birth. We know when he was 13, the Torah then skips till age 80. And even then, we only know about Moshe Rabbeinu from age 80 for the next year and a half, and then about 38 and a half years is missing, and then we only have year 120. So all this information about Moshe Rabbeinu that we have is only about three of the years of his life. But he did so much and he must have accomplished such a great deal to develop from that 13-year-old child, from that 13-year-old young adult, to the 80-year-old man of God. What happened during those intervening years? And Russia tell us how he was down in Ethiopia, he fought great battles, he became king, all of that is missing from the Torah. If we go to the life of Yitzhak Avinu, who lived 
till 180. We find that the Torah mentions very little of Yitzhak's life, and the parts that it does mention aren't the most seemingly momentous ones, but rather very trivial, mundane things, such as the digging of the wells, where it goes to great detail about that. Avram Avinu, his purchase of the real estate of the Mora Samach is lavished in great detail. Yet, the events of his life with wars and whatever are glossed over. Why does the Torah choose to dwell in great lavish detail on some things and other things it just glosses over, barely mentioning or not even mentioning? The Torah is not a history book. And the Torah is not trying to tell us what we think is important. The Torah is not a document to record history and to record momentous events as we see them as being momentous. But rather, the Torah Kedusha is Nitzchi, is eternal, and it's the Torah of the Bria, is the very foundation and the blueprint of creation itself. It's from where the cosmos was actually created from. And therefore, the same way that the events that are listed in the Torah and the letters in the Torah are the very stuff of the creation of the world, the, the letters themselves, the letters of the Torah are the imprint and the blueprint for creation. Likewise, all of the stories of the Torah and the stories of the Ovos that are written down with the letters of the Torah are only written down if they become the very stock and foundation of creation itself. Only if it's Nitzchis, but Nitzchis in the cosmic sense, only then is it in the Torah. And therefore everything that's in the Torah is there to be learned from and to derive lessons from. Which is why we have to always be aware that we learn halachas from things. When it says min ivrios, it teaches us min ivrios as opposed to min And when it tells us how Avram Avinu made a purchase of the Maras Machpela, it teaches us lessons about transactions that affect the laws of marriage itself. How you marry a woman. We derive and we learn lessons. If it's written in the Torah, it's not written as story. It's not written as history. It's written as Torah, as halacha, as things to be learned from. This is the very essence of creation itself. And if it's in the Torah, it's part of the Bria. It's the Tachlis Habriya. It's the very fiber of creation itself. It's Nitzchias. It's eternal. And therefore, only those events and those things that are part of the Bria and impact on the Nitzchias, on the eternity of the Bria, only those things are inscribed in the Torah as part of the Kisviyah Kodesh. And therefore, not those things that we may consider to be momentous and historical are worthy of mention in the Torah because they may not be the stuff of creation itself. They may not be part of the Bria. And therefore, yes, Moshe Rabbeinu could have been a ruler in Ethiopia for 40 years, and Avram accomplished great things till he was 75. But yes, all of those great momentous historical events are only part of history, but they're not part of the history of creation. They're not part of the history of Nitzchis, of eternity. They're part of what we consider significant momentous history, but not necessarily what Hashem considers the very foundation of creation itself. On the other hand, there could be trivial matters that to us seem insignificant, 
but the impact that it has on the Bria itself is stupendous. And we can't even necessarily know of that at this point. But their impact, their significance in the very fiber of creation itself is there. And therefore, if it's written in the Torah, those are the things that are part of the very essence of creation itself and of eternity. We said earlier how Antoninus is nursing for one day seemingly an insignificant fact that he should nurse from a Jewish woman, from Rabbi Damasi's mother rather than from his own. But who's to measure the impact that that had on his future life? How something trivial and insignificant impacts on life and on a person's future and his future life and therefore world history itself. That which Hashem considers significant, that which becomes part of creation, becomes part of eternity, can be viewed with different spectacles than what the world views as being significant. In the eyes of the person it seems trivial and insignificant, but the Roshim, the impact can be discerned in creation itself. It changes the course of the Bria and of history itself in the cosmic sense. And therefore it's written in the Torah because this is eternalized as part of Torah. If something is Torah, it's Nitzchis. If it becomes written in the Torah, then it's eternalized for all of history, it's eternalized for all of creation, becomes part of the Bria itself. That's what the Medrash teaches us. It's not that Ruvain or Aaron or Boaz would have done things better had they have been aware of the credit that would have accrued to them by having it written down. It's that they didn't realize that these events that to them were not as significant. If it's written in the Torah, it shows to what degree it's significant. They would have done it with much greater fervor and with much greater zeal and greater enthusiasm. If Aaron would have realized that his meeting of Moshe was so momentous that even the very feelings and emotions that he had of joy and happiness are meant to be recorded in the Torah itself and become fixed in the Bria, that the Veruach of the Somach Beliboy is so significant that it gets recorded in the Torah when great events do not get recorded in the Torah, but the Veruach of the Somach Beliboy is recorded in the Torah, if he would have realized that, he would have done it with much greater fervor because he wouldn't have, he didn't realize how significant this is in terms of its cosmic proportions. If Reuven would have realized that what he did was worthy of mention in the Torah and becomes eternalized for all of eternity, he would have done it much differently. So the Medrash is not trying to tell us that Reuven, Aaron, and Boaz how much they would have done things different if only they would have realized that it was going to be recorded for posterity. But the fact that it's recorded in the Torah, more than just merely recorded for posterity, it's recorded as a Roshim in the Bria itself. Had Aaron realized that his meaning of Moshe and the emotions that he felt deserved to be mentioned in the Torah because it's part of the Bria itself, he would have done it much differently. The Medrash therefore concludes, even Bizman Azah, we have to realize and be aware of this same approach and we have to have the same perspective. That that which a person does, and when he does mitzvahs, possibly get recorded into the very fiber of existence and creation itself, it has 
cosmological impact. It has cosmic impact. Melech HaMoshiach, Eliyahu write it and seal it. And Hashem signs it and seals it. And ultimately, it's going to be read in the future. And only then are we going to realize which seemingly trivial events had major cosmic proportions. A person has to realize that that which he does, mitzvahs that he does, can have great, tremendous significance, immeasurably beyond what he's capable of, of seeing. If you look around at the hoopla that's happening now with this millennium craze, what you see really is that the fact that it's an ordinary Friday night, that's what's significant from a cosmic perspective. Not the artificial, the artificial creation of time of the year 2000 of the millennium where the clock is changing with some zeros and is being celebrated and being, and being observed as a major event in world history. That's insignificant. What is significant is that it's Friday night, that it's Shabbos, that we're testifying to the very creation itself. That's what Shabbos is. Shabbos testifies to creation. Shabbos testifies that Hashem is the creator of the world. Shabbos has major import. Shabbos has major cosmic significance. If tonight is Friday night, that's important. That it's 2000 and that the whole world is going crazy about it, that's not important. That's not what's significant. It may be significant in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of Hashem, in the eyes of the Torah, what is significant? Yitzhak Avinu's digging of wells. Avram Avinu's real estate purchase of the Maras Machpelah. These were events that are recorded in the Torah and major lessons are learned and derived from there. They're part of the very, the very being of, of creation and existence itself. Shabbos is that. Friday night is major, has major impact. The year 2000 doesn't. Who is the man of the century? Who is the person that had the greatest impact on the world? One doesn't even have to learn the Torah and have Torah values and be a Torah Jew to recognize how the world has turned over this concept itself. According to the Time magazine, man of the century is Albert Einstein. I didn't read the article, but I presume that it has to do with the fact that some of the things that he did, some of his theories impacted on the world during the entire century, our whole computer age, space age, technology, certainly the atom bomb, our whole concepts of reality, and the cosmos, all of this was impacted on Einstein's theory of relativity, which in 1915, 1916, 1917, in the early stages of this century, was really just a theoretical piece that he wrote, which very few people were able to understand. Who would have dreamt that it will affect this century to such a degree? Yet, at the time when he wrote those things, Although no one realized how this will impact on the future course of history, it already changed the course of the rest of the century and of world history to the degree that, that 85 years later, that little, insignificant, that little insignificant theory at the time, that thesis that he wrote, is now deemed to be the most significant event of the entire century and impacted on the century. Yet, I recently heard on the radio 
where they auctioned off some of Einstein's letters and papers that he wrote, it went for a relatively modest few thousand dollars. By the same token, an actress, Marilyn Monroe, her cosmetic case fetched, I don't remember now the exact amounts, fifty, sixty thousand dollars dollars her used lipstick and makeup case. We know, we know, who was she? What impact did she have on the century? That her cosmetic case should go for a price way beyond the most significant document of the entire century? Teretz, as everyone is aware, the world is dealing in shtus. The fact that a rocket scientist and a physicist is paid, is paid relatively low wages, whereas a person with a bat and ball is able to hit the ball out of the park and is paid millions of dollars for it. We know that shtus, but nevertheless the world builds up the shtus and considers that to be something worthy of, of note, and that which the world itself recognizes as being significant is given short shrift. The statements of ball players are they intelligent? Are they smart? Yet they make the front page. But we know that these aren't people of any great, of any great uh, moral background or intellectual background. We know that all they're capable of doing is hitting a, 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 taking a bat and hitting a ball. Nevertheless, their statements make the front pages. See, even by the world's understanding, they realize how, how the Welt at large takes the trivia and the insignificant things and blows them up well above what they deserve and the most significant events are sometimes given short shrift. How much more so therefore should we Torah Jews be aware and realize that we shouldn't get caught up with the hoopla and the hype and the craze just because the world makes a big deal out of something it doesn't mean it's significant. And that which the world doesn't make a big deal out of may be much more significant. If the world itself, the Weltauder realizes this themselves, they realize that Einstein is the one that had the greatest impact on the century. Nevertheless, if Einstein was here today, he wouldn't be paid anywhere near what a ball player is paid. He wouldn't be paid anywhere near what a Marilyn Monroe is paid. And who is she and what is she? How could she compare to Einstein? Yet her cosmetic case should go for a hundredfold more than the theory of relativity which had the greatest impact on the century. But Oilum Gailum, they make a big deal out of something which they know is insignificant. Everyone knows that just because a baseball player or a football player or a hockey player or a musician or a, or a singer endorses a product and says that cornflakes taste good, everyone knows that that doesn't change anything and that they're not the people to make endorsements. Yet, they're paid millions of dollars to make these endorsements because apparently it has some effect. People follow things which they know themselves are shtus. All the more so, should we be aware that that which God considers truly significant may not be what the world does, and that which the world makes a big deal out of in God's eyes might be nothing. What's significant about tonight is not the change of the millennium, What's significant about tonight is that it's an ordinary Shabbos. An ordinary Friday night, that's something to celebrate. A millennial change of the clock, just because the world is celebrating it, doesn't mean that there's any significance to it whatsoever. 
from the Torah's vantage point, from the Torah's perspectives, through the Torah's spectacles, Virach of the Samach Belibo deserves honorable mention. Yet Moshe Rabbeinu's wars between Ethiopia and Egypt deserve no mention whatsoever. The building of the wells of Yitzhak Avinu deserves mention, yet the other 180 years of Yitzhak's life don't. The real estate deal to purchase the Moras Machpela deserves lavish detail, yet other major events don't. The Torah has different spectacles as to what's significant. We have to learn from the Torah the lessons that the Torah wants to teach us. Everything that's in the Torah is of cosmic proportion. That's what the Medrash means, that Ilu Yoda Aaron, Ilu Ruven, had Ruven and Aaron have realized the cosmic proportion of the significance of their deeds, then they would have been overwhelmed and they would have done it in a much greater way. They didn't realize that it has such cosmic proportions. And we have to realize that what we consider trivial, whether it's the way we nurse our children and educate our children, who knows how cosmically significant it's going to be only when Mashiach comes and the Sefer HaZichroinus is read. Only then will we know that as we perform these deeds, which were the deeds that had the greatest impact and the most major repercussions on future history. It, the book is still being written. The book of creation, the book of history is still being written. And when we finally read it, there may be no mention of it whatsoever of the millennium change, but some insignificant act that someone does may have major ramifications. So the Medrash is trying to teach us that when a person goes through life and views the deeds and the impact of his deeds, he has to try to attempt to view it through Torah spectacles, from Hashem's vantage point, what is significant and what isn't. I remember hearing when I was young how there was a disciple of Einstein who was once a Talmud by Reb Chaim Brisker. He learned by Reb Chaim Brisker and later on he wound up going to university and being a student by Albert Einstein. So they asked him, so who's smarter? We know that Einstein obviously was a genius and brilliant and Reb Chaim Brisker was Lahavdal kind of a counterpart in the Torah world, also brilliant, also revolutionizing Torah learning and Torah thought. Who was more brilliant? Who was a greater genius? So the way the story goes is that he said that in all likelihood Einstein was the smarter one, the greater genius, the more brilliant. But Chaim Brisker is given a besser of He explained things better. He put things down very well. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky commented on that as Mr. Mirdar from Gleben that Chaim Brisker was smarter. But in any case, it's interesting to note the comparison between the two. The fact is, who has the greater impact on Bria? Was it Albert Einstein? Or was it Chaim Brisker? So when I heard over the story originally, I think it was Rabbi Kamenetsky is the one that said, could you imagine, even if Chaim Brisker was more brilliant, but we see that what, an, what Einstein was. Can you imagine if Einstein would have learned Tyre? how great and brilliant he would have been and how much he could have accomplished in Tyre. Truth is, when you tell most people the same story, they have the opposite thought. They think, wow, Chaim Brisker was so brilliant. Could you imagine if he would have gone to university? What he would have done, how he would have revolutionized the world 
and what theories he would have come up with and what impact he would have had on the world now that the so-called century and millennium is coming to a close and they're trying to figure out who were the people that had the greatest impact that had the greatest significance on life on the world on history in general and this has been going on it was a project that they were discussing already for years who's the greatest man of the century who had the greatest impact on the century and ironically enough by the end they concluded that it was Albert Einstein he had the greatest impact on the century he was the greatest person so to speak of the century that had the greatest impact on revolutionizing the world and affecting and impacting on the century and on history and yet as we said earlier in the eyes of the world the people that are the most insignificant and the most trivial are given the greatest are given the greatest degree of of prominence in fact you don't even have to be a person to be given prominence go explain to someone from a hundred years ago how one of the greatest cultural icons in the United States of America today is the mouse Mickey Mouse the impact that Mickey Mouse has on American culture is is beyond measure but explain to someone what does it mean that our culture has this icon Mickey Mouse and how important he is for American culture even explain it to someone from Eretz Yisrael explain to a Yid from Eretz Yisrael that there's a, a, a Moise by the name of Mickey and he has great impact on American culture who's this mouse what kind of a mouse oh he's not even a real mouse he's only a fictional mouse a cartoon mouse but he has great impact on American culture and on American society yes Mickey Mouse has tremendous impact on American society it's undeniable it's unquestionable but who is he what is he what is it it's nothing it's it's a figment of someone's imagination but yet it revolutionized many many things the entertainment industry the recreational industry all from this mouse Mickey Mouse the most insignificant things are given the greatest play by people at large and therefore whether they are ball players or basketball players and they pontificate on things that they know nothing about they're given great play yet the world recognizes that someone of the level of Albert Einstein who did so much and revolutionized so much in the world and although his his things his personal effects go for go for a fraction of what movie stars effects go for yet they realize he is truly significant for the century and from the vantage point of what impact on human history he is the one that has greater impact than a mouse or than Marilyn Monroe or whatever the case may be so then let's take it to a higher level from a Torah perspective from a Torah perspective is it an Albert Einstein that impacts on creation or is it a Reb Chaim Brisker that impacts on creation we were talking the other day who were the greatest most significant Torah people of the century was Reb Aaron Kotler who brought Torah to America and revolutionized the whole American system of Torah education Yeshivas, Koilim, B'nai Torah, it's all to thank Rav Aaron Kotler for bringing this kind of Torah learning to America. Perhaps it's the Satmar Rav who brought Haredish Yiddishkeit to America, to the Gauls. Perhaps it's the Chazanish who was the Torah giant 
who was able to be the one to set to set the pace of modern life in Eretz Yisrael from a Torah perspective. Maybe it's Rav Moshe Feinstein, whose decisions in halachic, in the halachic realm, in terms of modern times and science and technology, was sought by everyone in the entire world for decades. Perhaps, as we said earlier, Chaim Brisker, who revolutionized Torah learning and Torah thought and the methods of Torah learning in this century. Perhaps the Chofetz Chaim, the Mishnah Brura, the impact that the Chofetz Chaim had on the world, on the Torah world. So we're discussing who were the people of this century that had the greatest Torah impact on history. That's what the Medrash concludes. The Medrash says a person when he does a mitzvah should be aware that it's being inscribed and that the book isn't finished yet. It's going to be finished only when Mashiach comes and then it'll be read and then in the Sefer HaZechronis we'll see all the deeds of a person, which ones are part of Bria, which ones are part of Tyra, which ones are part of eternity, Nitzchias, and have cosmic proportions. Which mitzvahs, which deeds that he does. Melech HaMashiach and Elianovi and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, write it and sign it. And then it's going to be read and then we'll see what are the true events that impact on history and impact on, of a, on a cosmic level, that impact on Nitzchius and impact on Bria itself. And then we'll have the answer as to whether it was more important for Einstein to develop his theory of relativity or maybe it would have been much better for Einstein to be in the yeshiva and come up with a new terence on Tysus's kasha. But the fact that the world views it the other way should not, should not in any way discourage us because we know that even by the world standards they attach greater significance to things that they themselves know to be trivial. That which they themselves know to be trivial they attach a greater significance to and they know that they're doing that. Even by their standards they know what's important and what's not nevertheless they still give greater play and hoopla to that which is trivial than to that which is significant. Surely then we should not be disheartened from this because from a Torah perspective Hashem views things on a different way as we see from the Torah itself the Torah's perspective on things is to ignore out of Moshe Rabbeinu's 120 years to ignore the, the 70 odd years between, between his escape from Mitzrayim and his vision of the burning bush that entire period of Moshe Rabbeinu's life is totally ignored in the Torah itself Yet the Torah will lavish detail on a real estate purchase of the Morris and Achpelah. In the eyes of the Torah, this is significant, this is not significant. In the eyes of the Torah, Reb Chaim Briskus, Chidusha Reb Chaim Alevi, is more valuable and does more to impact on the cosmic level than the theory of relativity, which is a cosmic theory. Although the theory of relativity is a theory about the cosmos, but the truths that Reb Chaim Brisker has to for Enfrizach Shver Rambams can have even greater cosmic impact and greater cosmic import. How do we judge significance? We have to judge it from the Torah vantage point, from the Torah perspective. We have to view things through Torah spectacles.